Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we're going to set the scene for the next 10 to 15 episodes by talking about the strategic shift from forward defense to defense of Australia and how that impacted RAF C-130s along with talking about C-130H acquisition and C-130A disposal. I'm your host, Bill Korolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian and Australian Air Forces, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in late 2024. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, through the 1950s and 60s, Australia relied on a strategy called forward defense, in which Australia contributed to British and U.S. defense strategy in Australia's near region, thereby seeking to deter threats as far from Australia as possible, and at the same time garner supports from the U.K. and the U.S. just in case. But by the late 1960s and early 1970s, both the UK and the US made it clear to Australia that they might not be able to assist Australia in time of need. Along with a domestic population that was weary of the war in Vietnam, this led to Australia's 1976 White Paper. It had an inward focus, defining a new defence policy of self-reliance, and it was also referred to as Defence of Australia. The 1976 White Paper assumed large-scale wars abroad were unlikely and that Australia would seek to engage regionally through defence cooperation with developing nations in the near regions. And at the time, the government was looking favourably on the prospects for peace in Southeast Asia. Colonial powers were retreating from the near region, giving Australia the opportunity to foster positive relations with the Southeast Asian region, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and the Southwest Pacific. This work had begun in the previous decade, and it became enhanced under the new defense strategy. The 1976 White Paper succinctly detailed the defense tasks. For the RAF, this primarily meant that it had to be able to prevent any adversary from gaining a foothold on Australian territory. Impacting on air mobility, the 1976 White Paper said that the ADF had to support counterterrorism, the United Nations peacekeeping efforts, high technology operations, independent operations, and the ADF had to be able to operate with the U.S. Specifically for air mobility, the White Paper stated that the ADF needed to have readily transportable and mobile land forces and a capability for sustained operations at long ranges from bases and in remote areas from sources of logistics support. The White Paper also noted peacetime roles of the ADF and made special mention of support to civil authorities for search and rescue, both on land and sea, medical evacuation, and relief from the effects of natural disasters such as floods, bushfires, or cyclones. Sounds a lot like something air mobility might be good at, right? Well, these were comprehensive marching orders, and that white paper led to significant equipment and force structure decisions over the next two decades. In particular for air mobility, with fewer combat operations to support overseas, the C-130 force became available for enhanced training and tasking across a wider range of domestic and international initiatives. And this is a critical point here. The enhanced training and increased emphasis on preparedness 
for independent Australian operations led to much capability enhancement. Leaps and bounds that wouldn't have been possible while maintaining overseas operations as the C-130s did under the policy of forward defence. Additionally, with the governments being keen on using C-130s for a much broader range of roles, C-130 squadrons recorded some of their highest monthly hour totals ever in the 75-86 to 86 period, including 1,264 hours by 36 squadron in May 1985. Simply phenomenal for 12 airplanes and such a small crew force and maintenance force. The 76 white paper included the need for a strategic air mobility platform. Hence, the 1976 white paper confirmed Australia would replace the C-130As with Hs. The C-130H was intended to replace the C-130A in its Army support role, and the Hercules fleet remained the ADF's strategic air mobility platform, in particular the C-130E. So, let's talk about the C-130H acquisition. In the lead-up to the 76 white paper, it was obvious the C-130A fleet was on its last legs. Having operated for 17 years as of 1976, the forecast usage rate for the C-130As predicted that they would reach 1978 with 12,000 hours each, vice the 10,000-hour limit that was set by Lockheed. The RAF's high-quality engineering organizations were familiar with extending airframes beyond their advertised life of type, but by the mid-1970s, it was acknowledged the fatigue issues and repair costs would be unaffordable for the C-130A beyond 1978. The Australian government approved the C-130H contract in the 1975-76 fiscal year at approximately $7 million Australian each. That's without spares or other project costs. The C-130Hs cost Australia roughly three times as much as the A's. C-130Hs were a significant capability leap over the C-130As and improved upon the E model as well. The C-130Hs more powerful T-56-A-15 engines produced 4,910 equivalent shaft horsepower, providing improved takeoff and landing performance over the other two models, as well as better performance in high and hot settings such as in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Lockheed described the 1978 C-130Hs as the advanced C-130H because that variant was modified from earlier Hs with the modern auxiliary power unit, or APU, and improved air conditioning. In comparison to the C-130E's gas turbine compressor, the APU delivered a notable improvement in austere location starts by providing 20% more starting power and a more reliable system. Also of benefit was the improved air conditioning system. The C-130As and E's had one large air conditioning unit, whereas the RAF-H's had two large units. Along with better climate control, the improved air conditioning system enabled the C-130H to maintain a lower cabin altitude when flying at high cruise ceilings. Another key feature of the C-130H was that the RAF required it with the APQ-122 ground mapping radar. Now, the C-130A and E were acquired with the APN-59, which I've described in previous episodes. But by 1975, Lockheed was producing H's with an option for the Texas Instruments 122 radar. The 122 was an advanced, multi-purpose, airborne navigational radar with a pulse-modulated, solid-state, frequency-agile X-band system, which provided precise navigational capabilities for long-range ground mapping, weather detection, and beacon interrogation. 
And if that sounded like it came out of a glossy brochure, it probably did. In the hands of a skilled navigator, the 7-inch cathode ray tube, which was about double the size of the APN 59 display, produced sufficient definition to enable terrain-hugging-ish and low-level flights at night. This was achieved by setting the radar to the 30 nautical mile scale, and then a cursor could be slewed to the area of interest, and the picture expanded around the cursor to show the upcoming 3 to 15 nautical miles, which was about 45 seconds to 4 minutes ahead of the aircraft. This flexibility and display manipulation resulted in being able to paint key features, such as towns, rivers, major road junctions, which were then used to refine the navigation solution. Additionally, by looking at the radar shadow thrown by hills when at low level, it could be determined if the aircraft was below, level, or above surrounding terrain. And of course, this was critical information if you're flying tactically in mountainous terrain at night or in the weather. The 122 was also ideal for very low light conditions where the target drop zone or landing zone might not be visible to the crew until, say, half a mile or a mile out, which is only about 15 to 30 seconds from the drop or touchdown. In those circumstances, the radar navigator used the radar to set up the aircraft on a precise run-in alignment, thereby improving the odds of seeing the drop zone or runway at the last moment. Unfortunately, the APQ-122 never reached its full potential as it did in USAF squadrons, because 36 Squadron didn't get the version that came with an integrated inertial navigation system. USAF C-130s fitted with the 122 had their radar integrated with the inertial navigation system such that the radar cursor, driven by a joystick, could be used to instantaneously, with the click of a button, update the navigation solution and therefore the pilot's tracking displays. Despite this omission, the APQ-122 radar gave 36 Squadron an excellent foundation to build their airdrop and airland procedures in the late 1980s. There were many other technical improvements on the C-130H, some of which I've discussed in earlier episodes, such as the redesigned wing, and others that I'll discuss in future episodes. The transition to the RAF's third C-130 model was smoother than the previous two models. A 486 Squadron Wing Commander, Peter Newton, was posted to Marietta, Georgia, in mid-1976 to ensure compliance with the contracts, observe the aircraft build, and manage the acceptance procedure which was basically a test flight. The first of the 12 C-130Hs, serial number A97-001, was accepted by the RAF on the 17th of July, 1978. This aircraft, and 002, arrived in Australia on the 20th of July, 1978, captained by squadron leader Hugo Germanis. Plenty of close-up aerial photos were taken as the shiny new aircraft flew in formation over Sydney on the way to Richmond. With the first two aircraft on strength at 36 Squadron, the transition from the C-130As to Hs commenced on the 29th of July with the first unit-based conversion course. It took almost two months before C-130As began any tasking, because during the July to August period, the new aircraft were almost exclusively used for conversion courses and training of support personnel at Richmond. Additionally, there wasn't a C-138 simulator in 1978, the H simulator had to wait until 1980 when a five and a quarter million dollar contract was signed with the Singer Link Company of New York. Given that the first H's were used for training only, it wasn't until the 23rd of August that the first C-130H task was mentioned in the 36 Squadron Unit history, and it was actually a training flight that was retasked while returning from Norfolk Island to conduct a search and rescue mission. And unfortunately, I don't know how it went. 
I suppose this is a good spot for us to talk about the C-130A disposal. You may have heard about it, and that it might have been a bit of a schlamozzle, and that's a pretty good description of what happened. Despite the C-130's workhorse nature, nothing lasts forever, and the C-130As came to the end of their economical life with the RAF in 1978. As they neared their planned withdrawal date, several events marked the end of the C-130A era. A disposal plan was put in place, commencing in late 1977 with the slow drawdown of C-130As. A-97-209 was the first to be parked because it was unairworthy, and the remainder was slowly retired and parked at Laverton. The remaining 11 aircraft were marketed for sale through advertising by the Department of Administrative Services. This required 486 Squadron to service those 11 aircraft to a Class 1 standard, whatever that means, in preparation for being sold and flown out of Australia. At the same time, the C-130A flight simulator was sold to Singapore after a whopping 48,000 power-on hours, and it flew its last RAF sim mission on the 6th of July, 1978. Fittingly, that simulator session was an emergency fuel situation that led to a ditching on a beach near Tenga, Singapore. By the end of August 1978, 36 Squadron had five A's remaining and had four H's in Richmond. With most of the C-130A's on their way or at Laverton, on the 25th of September 1978, the final assigned tasks were flown. A formation flew to Laverton consisting of 208, 212, and 215, and it was a three-ship that flew from Richmond over Sydney, then Canberra, Melbourne, and Point Cook before landing at Laverton, and 207 flew a rural route over western New South Wales before landing at Laverton. Once at Laverton, the crews exited their aircraft already attired in black with bow ties and cummerbunds to attend an informal wake ceremony. And with that ceremony, the last official C-130A tasking was complete, finishing off an impressive 145,000 accident-free hours. And that's a good testament to the professionalism of the aircrew and the maintenance team. The C-130A disposal was not quite settled at that point, as no offers had been received. A tender was reissued in late 1978, and on the 22nd of June 1979, a deal was struck with Parmax Incorporated of Arlington, Texas, for the purchase of 10 of the aircraft at Laverton. 209 and 211 were still at Richmond at that point, being used as training aids. The deal required Parmax to remove the C-130As after payments of $10 million Australian, which was due on the 9th of July. That deadline was extended, awaiting the repair of one aircraft, but they failed to pay. And in November 1979, Parmax was issued a formal notice of overdue payments, and from then on, the disposal became quite the saga. Parmax went into defaults in April 1980, and that was the end of any hope of a quick disposal. At that point, it was decided AMTDU would retain 209 as a training aid, and 211 would be moved to Wagga for similar training duties at the RAF School of Technical Training. Thus, the very last RAF flight of a C-130A flew from Richmond to Wagga after much rectification work by 486 Squadron on 211, because it hadn't flown for two years and had to fly with the gear and flaps down to limit what needed to function in flight. The crew was no longer qualified on A's, so a quick refresher was prepared for squadron leader John Pickett and his crew, and to mark the occasion, the crew put on black armbands and flew a Jolly Roger as they taxied out of Richmond for takeoff. 
I can only imagine what the airworthiness enthusiasts would think about that flight today. But moving on. In 1981, the California law firm Ford and Vlahos were appointed as sales agents for the remaining C-130As, 10 of them remember. The aircraft register records indicate that the firm had some success. They sold 208 to the French government, which was then used in Chad in 1983, and then sold 212 and 216 to Avacion Colombiana for work in Colombia, but that was blocked by the U.S. State Department because they suspected those C-130s were going to be doing drug running work. But those two airplanes made it to the U.S. before the deal was canceled. Defense Equipment was appointed as a new sales agent in June 86. Remember, this is now eight years after they were parked. Using Australian government funds, they promptly organized to prepare two C-130As for support of the Ethiopian famine relief. That's the one that was organized by Bob Geldof in the International Red Cross. 207 was restored at Laverton by ex-RAF reservists and aircraft maintenance experienced civilians who worked with 486 and 280 to make it airworthy. From there, 207 flew to Richmond, where it was loaned to the Red Cross, which then flew it to France for more repairs, and it commenced flying for live aid out of Addis Ababa. The second aircraft was never provided, and Ian Cobb returned 207 back to Avalon in late 1986. In May 1988, so now we're 10 years after the retirement of the A's, through to the mid-89, the bulk of the aircraft either ended up with Abowitz Air Transport for Cargo Work in the Philippines, or Fowler Aeronautical Corporation, who used them largely for parts. The most storied of those A's was probably 212, which survived its close call with being a Colombian drug runner, to then fly free-fall parachuting sorties in the U.S. for Cherry Aviation, It also starred in the movie American Gangster, and then it had a wingtip fuel tank modification, and there are some great pictures of it with wingtip fuel tanks. Of those left in Australia in 1990, A97-209 was scrapped after a freak storm threw it onto its back in Richmond, and I think it was just buried on site. 205 was used as a ground training aid for parachutists at Holsworthy until it was scrapped at some point after 1990. Although, how the fuselage got to Holesworthy, I don't know. And given its fine record in operations such as Vietnam, Thailand, and Cyclone Tracy, 214 ended up at the RAF Museum in 1994, and in 2022, its cockpit was donated to the National Vietnam Veterans Museum. And that's where it is today, today being January 2024. Well, that was quite the story. That's all for today. Unfortunately, for those of you who tune into The Workhorse every week, I'm moving to a new schedule. You can expect it to come out every other weekend for the rest of this year. Next episode, we'll be talking about aerial firefighting. If you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about The Workhorse Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.